Welcome everyone. This is Wayne Stacy from the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. And I'm here today uh, again with Michael Smith uh, from his new firm of Chef and Stone. Um, everyone knows Michael is the creator and curator of the material on the, the Eastern District of Texas blog at edtextlawblog.com. And Michael is probably the uh, foremost uh, expert on what's going on all throughout Texas these days, not just the Eastern District. So, Michael, thank you for joining us again today. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Well, let's just start with the easy question. Tell us what happened in Texas last week. Well, we got some guidance from the Court of Appeals. Well, tell us, tell us about that. Well, there's a couple of cases uh, that I wanted to mention. The first comes out of the Eastern District of Texas. Uh, in an Eastern District case, the Fifth Circuit resolved a mandamus petition on whether documents that a district judge had ordered produced were protected by the attorney-client privilege. In this case, Judge Mazant up in Sherman ordered the defendant to produce 53 documents that it contended were privileged. The defendant had filed a petition for writ of mandamus challenging that holding that 19 of the documents lacked attorney-client privilege and the other 34 were subject to the crime-fraud exception. Now, the Fifth Circuit upheld on the 19 documents, but it granted mandamus on the 34 crime-fraud-accepted documents. So, Michael, I'm going to ask a quick question that's kind of California-related, but in California state court, judges don't actually look at these documents in camera. They, they study the privilege log because uh, they don't want to be tainted by actually reading the attorney-client privilege documents. What's the procedure typically used uh, by Judge Mazant? The procedure with Judge Mazant is typically that he will look at documents in camera, and I know that in this case, he actually did, he requested the documents, reviewed them in camera, and the order that we're talking about was after he had reviewed them in camera and concluded which ones he thought were covered by the privilege, which ones were not, and on which one the privilege had been waived. So that's something important for California lawyers to remember that other judges do look at those documents, and even though they may not uh, be produced, they can leave a little bad taste in the judge's mouth. So tell us why this particular mandamus was granted. Well, with respect to the crime fraud accepted documents, the panel concluded that Judge Mazant had erred in finding that the plaintiffs had established a prima facie case that the documents were subject to the crime fraud exception. The specific error that I identified was that Judge Mazant relied solely on one finding, that, the, that there was an existence of a temporal nexus between the documents and the alleged fraudulent activity. They said that is not correct, that's not sufficient to satisfy the standard, and that's why the court's finding as to those documents was set aside. It was a pretty good Spe guidance going forward for, for people to understand the, the nexus. Well, it is, because that the court made very clear that's why we're granting it, is because we don't want courts to think that this is a sufficient finding to find the crime-fraud exception. So it will provide useful guidance to uh, uh, litigants in the, in the future. As an as a interesting local note, one of the members of the panel at the Fifth Circuit used to be a Dallas state court judge when District Judge Mazant was a Dallas appellate judge. 
So he used to grade her papers, and they liked to joke at seminars. He had actually granted some mandamuses or reversed her a few times. So she always likes to joke about how now she gets the opportunity to grade his papers. So this ought to be fun at the uh, bench bar this fall when they get together on a panel. Long memory. We, we actually... We actually had another discovery case come up this, this week that was kind of interesting. So what was the, that one? Well, it dealt with deposition time in a patent case in a situation that, that actually comes up a lot. In this case, the defendant wanted more time for the deposition of the plaintiff's corporate deponent, and the corporate deponent was its sole employee and the inventor on a patent in suit. And, of course, we see that often where an inventor is monetizing their patent. They've created a company. So in this case, the defendants had already had seven hours of deposition time with this guy, as well as two additional days of depositions in a related ITC case. They were asking for seven hours more, and Judge Schrader in Texarkana went through the issues, balanced the considerations, and looked at recent cases around the district that had looked at the same issue and said, two hours is enough, and everybody make sure you're not being duplicative. So that's, that's a useful benchmark to take back to a client in a case and say, you're probably not going to get seven. Here's what judges have previously found kind of useful. Well, as we, we step into the, some of the other districts, what's, what's going on in Dallas and Houston these days? Not much. There are some, some cases coming out of trade secrets and uh, copyright cases uh, but nothing significant in the past week. Some weeks are busy, some weeks are not. Well, let's go to the district that is busy. Uh, what's going on in the Western District? Well, the big issue out of Waco this past week is venue. We have a, a several significant venue opinions from Judge Albright over the last week, 10 days, that I want to talk about. And then Monday of this week, the Federal Circuit granted another venue mandamus. So we're comparing the current district court opinions with the mandamus opinions to see if that that changes things. But I wanted to start with what Judge Albright had to say last week in some cases. A case that that has a lot of of good stuff in it um, for people to know what the analysis is and what the relevant factors are is the Bluebonnet case. And in that case against Pandora, Judge, Judge Albright found that the defendant had not met what he characterized as the heavy burden of showing that the Northern District of California is clearly more convenient in that case. So what's significant about, about Judge Albright saying that this time? Well, it starts with, with what I just said. The language I just recited was from the beginning and the end of the order, and he italicized the words clearly more convenient. So up front and at the end, you kind of get an indication of, of where he is in terms of what he believes uh, the standard is, and, and that his, his view of the standard is that it's a heavy burden and you have to show that it's clearly more convenient. Seems like that's a good, a good phrase for all attorneys to remind their clients of before they file this motion is that heavy burden. Yes, absolutely. The, the order also has his customary lament. Uh, that's his word. He, he laments a lot uh, on this issue that the Fifth Circuit precedent, which comes out of the Volkswagen cases, focuses on the physical location 
of servers containing electronic documents. He thinks that's out of touch with modern patent litigation, but he follows it. But in this case, what was interesting is he found what was most persuasive uh, by the defendant was not saying we've got a bunch of documents on our servers, but pointing out our source code is in Northern District of California and would have to be inspected uh, in person in the Northern District of California. So that kind of tells me I need to emphasize that a little more when I'm talking about uh, documents. Don't focus on the documents so much. If the source code requires an inspection somewhere, focus on that. There's another thing that's unusual about this case, or not unusual, but it's a useful analysis is he, he goes uh, really heavy on the witness analysis. He looks at a lot of different types of witnesses and uh, one thing he says that the defendant's identification of all these third-party prior art witnesses, he says that's irrelevant because his experience has been that prior art witnesses are unlikely to testify at trial. Now, if you've been reading Fifth Circuit opinions in the last 72 hours, you'll know that that, that finding's about to be under fire. But what he observes is, given the typical time limits at trial, all these witnesses that we talk about, the battle of the numbers at the venue stage, those people don't show up at trial. So he gives a, a, an insight into what he sees at trial and says, based on that, a lot of these witnesses I'm discounting because I don't see them showing up at trial. Now, that's pragmatic, but it's going to run into a Federal Circuit opinion that I'll talk about in a few minutes. Now, finally, the other thing that's different about this opinion is when he analyzes the time to trial statistics between Waco and the transferee court, in this case, the Northern District of California, um, what he's done in the past is he looks at statistical evidence for Northern District of California, comes up with 34.1 months, and then in the past what he's done is he said, I'm scheduling these for a year faster than that. But the Federal Circuit cases have repeatedly said you can't go by when you're scheduling it. It's got to be actual time to trial. So for the first time in this order, he runs down the actual time to trial in four or five of his last patent trials and says, here's what it actually is. It's, it's, it ranges from 20 to 26 months on average. It's 12 months shorter. So you have statistical real data backing this up. Uh, so that's something we're going to be looking at to see what the Federal Circuit thinks about that. He also points out, although he doesn't assign weight to this, that there's a trial backlog in California due to COVID. He started patent trials back last October, so he doesn't have the backlog. So he's kind of previewing that he anticipates that there's going to be an even uh, bigger discrepancy. So a lot of useful stuff in that Bluebonnet case. That's kind of the, the gold standard for what the analysis is in his court right now. So as I, I looked at the Bluebonnet case, it really seemed that Judge Albright was working hard to provide guidance for for new litigants coming in, helping them brief these issues, uh, more than just deciding this single case. So it should be should be heavily relied on is what I'm hearing you say. Oh, I think so. I think so. This is this is the, the best opinion that I've seen in terms of the in-depth analysis and it's current. It's what the current analysis is, and that's why it's one of the cases that came out this past week that I think is useful to look at going forward. Well, there was a, another significant venue case that's catching a lot of people's eyes, the, the Demare case. Tell us what, what's going on there. Well, in that case, the plaintiff sued two defendants in separate cases, Intel and Samsung, over their use of reactive magnetron sputtering reactors 
don't ask me to say that twice, that are actually made in the Western District of Texas and both sought a transfer to the Northern District of California. And in two opinions over the last few weeks, Judge Albright denied those motions to transfer. He denied Intel's motion, finding that the documents were not shown to be more accessible in the Northern District of California. So I'm, I'm going to be changing up my language on what to argue. Don't argue that they're don't argue, just argue that they're equally accessible in both. He also found that it was very significant that it, there was related litigation pending against the Samsung entities dealing with the same products, and which I'll talk about Samsung in a second. But he said if the Intel case is transferred to California, it will likely be stayed pending the IPRs. So the secret's out. He thinks California judges are likely to stay cases. Well, Spending my life in California, uh, I think most people know that California judges are, are really favorable toward stays in patent cases. So why, why now is Judge Albright going down this path? I don't know why he's going down it other than to point out that uh, in this case, he's, he's distinguishing between the Samsung case, which will go forward under his schedule, and a case transferred to California, which number one might be uh, is going to have the twelve month backlog, and he talks about that in this order. It's going to have additional backlog due to the pandemic, and he's adding in, and it's likely to be stayed. So he's so he's pointing out the difference between the uh, uh, the two courts. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that's a factor that survives uh, appellate review. Now. The local interest factor is a little different um, also because Intel has a substantial presence in Austin, Texas. They employ, I think, a little under 2,000 people there, and the products are at issue are manufactured in the Western District of Texas. They're designed in Northern District of California, but they're manufactured in Western District. Now, in a separate order a few weeks later, which came out last week, the court denied Samsung's motion. and. The thing to remember about venue opinions is they all rely on different facts. Samsung is different from Intel. Samsung has subsidiaries located in Austin in the Western District, and Samsung is using the accused products at the facilities in the Western District. So I have to, to give you a shameless plug here on, on Samsung. Uh, I think your, your son may have shown up as a new engineer. Uh, he does. He does. He just finished at Baylor, and he started at Samsung last week, and I mean last month. And we're very proud of him. But it's a uh, it's nice having a a, a kid that's uh, off the payroll for a change. <laughs> uh, there's always a chance for for graduate school, so don't kid yourself. <laughs> uh, so I think there was a, a federal circuit opinion out that that addresses some of J Judge Albright's uh, venue decisions. What's what's the word on that? Well, there is, and that's the reason we're paying more attention to venue cases this week, because we've always got to compare the orders that are coming out against what the Federal Circuit is saying. On Monday of this week in Enray Hulu, the Federal Circuit granted a petition for writ of mandamus and required Judge Albright to transfer a case to the Central District of California. Now, in the order, the court focused on the three factors that Judge Albright had concluded weighed against transfer in that case. They thought that they all three weighed in favor of transfer or, at worst, were neutral, which would have caused the factors to weigh in favor of transfer. Well, what did the panel say that's going to affect Judge Albright's analysis in upcoming cases? Well, 
it said it said something about all three factors that is that I think you're going to have to take into consideration in the future. First of all, on the witness analysis, the panel had a problem with Judge Albright's categorical rejection of certain types of witnesses without a case-specific analysis. So I, I want to make sure I uh, dr drill in on that particular thing. It wasn't that his analysis was wrong. It's just that he did it by category rather than looking at the individual facts of that case. So he can go down the path that he went down if he's just a little more thoughtful about it. That's absolutely correct. In that case, uh, the, the first thing they complained about was prior art witnesses. And as I said previously in the Blue Bonnet opinion, he said, look, prior art witnesses never testify at trial, so I'm going to discount them. And they said, you can't do that unless you do case-specific analysis that says, in this case, we're not likely to see prior art witnesses because of this. In this case, we're not likely to see this type of witness. Um, simply uh, common sense or judicial experience. <laughs> I, I have to laugh here because this is kind of funny when the appellate court is saying common sense and, and experience is not sufficient standing alone. So tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, why would the, why would the court go that way? Well, the, the reason why I think that's funny is because the, the claimed lack of support for a conclusion sounds exactly like what I've heard Judge Albright do to experts in Daubert hearings when he's identifying a missing step or a lack of stated support for a conclusion. So the, the appellate court's analysis here is very similar to what we're used to in the Daubert context. Um, Judge Albright, you say this, but there's nothing about this case that connects it. So it, it's a familiar analysis, and it's something I think he'll be able to address. If he believes that these witnesses are not necessary in this case, he can't just say, look, I try patent cases all the time, and I never see people do this. He has to say why in this case he believes that general rule that he's familiar with, why, why experience alone uh, is not sufficient. So just a, an additional paragraph of explanation will probably make the, the blue bonnet style analysis work going forward. Very possibly, very possibly. That, that is all that they're asking him to do. They're not telling him you can't exclude witnesses categorically. They're just saying it has to be tied to analysis in the particular case. You have to, um, I mean, the problem I ran into with my kids in math classes, you have to show your work. It's not enough that you get the right answer. You have to show your work. So what are the other factors the, the Federal Circuit was concerned about? Well, one dealt with the availability of party witnesses, and what we're used to on that is you don't give much, you don't pay much attention to party witnesses. You focus on convenience of non-party witnesses, and the court here really kind of wanted to drill down and assign more weight to the location of party witnesses, and one thing I thought was a little unusual was they were talking about party witnesses that neither side had identified as likely witnesses at trial. So they pointed out the plaintiffs from California and plaintiffs got six employees, and they're all in California. Well, the plaintiff's not going to call all six employees, but, but it's important to know that the court's looking at that. Uh, the last factor the court talked about was court congestion, and here again, the Federal Circuit was faulting Judge Albright for talking about the scheduled time to trial as opposed to the actual time to trial. Now, again, 
you have to keep in mind that Judge Albright's updated his analysis to take into account actual time to trial. Now, whether the court, whether the appellate court is going to say that's sufficient or whether they're going to say we still want to have you average everything in over the last four years, we don't know. Um, so, so again, that's a factor that we're going to look at, but we don't know the answer of what the federal circuit's going to think about the analysis now that it contains actual time to trial uh, data, which it didn't back when it first started saying you can't go by schedule. Well, obviously a, a big week in venue. Anything else coming out of the Western District? There, there is one other case that I think is significant. Um, uh, it's a bit of inside baseball for patent practitioners, but it uh, has to do with priority dates. You know that language that plaintiffs will put in when they're asked to put down what the priority date, and they always put at least as early as such and such date? Um, I m- might, have, might have used that a couple times. Yeah, I think, I think we all have. Well, the defendant in that case moved to strike the at least as early as qualifier in the plaintiff's preliminary infringement contentions and locked them down to that specific date. Now, Judge Albright denied the motion, but he held that the defendants can rely on the dates identified in the operative priority date, not the language, the dates. And then he said, and I'm quoting here, to the extent plaintiff later seeks to amend those dates, the court will consider an appropriate course of action at that time, end quote. So it seems like a, a win, that that is a grant on the motion to strike. Why not just strike the language and move on? Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's the same thing as granting. But the reason I wanted to mention this is because it's a characteristic that I've seen from Judge Albright in other contexts. He might not grant a motion. I had a pretrial with him where I argued a bunch of motions in limine, and he didn't grant the motion ordering the other side not to do something. But in numerous instances, it'll be because he observes on the record, well, they're not going to do that. Now, it's hard to put that into a proposed order, but I bring it up because while you don't really get a ruling, maybe you got the same thing. So it's a characteristic of this particular judge that I try to alert people to. You may not get a ruling, but what he gives you probably gives you what you want. If you look at the box that the plaintiff is in in this case, they're really not going to be able to use that language, even though they won the motion, without coming back and saying, okay, we found something, now we want to go earlier than that. So it's just, uh, this is a characteristic of this judge that I think is worth pointing out. So, Michael, it is the lesson here for everyone else to go ahead and use that language until they're told to take a stand? Oh, I think so. I think so, because if you don't have a party challenge you on it, you may have the ability to come in and say, I didn't say it was Christmas Day 2004. I said it was as least, at least as early as that. But it also means on the other side that you need to push back on that and make sure you get that understanding that they're stuck with the date until they come out with something earlier. Because clearly that's what Judge Albright wants you to think. It's possible that this might even make it into his FAQs at some point on his website to where we don't have to go to him in every case uh, to get that understanding uh, regarding the language. So would you advise for now for every defendant to at least raise the issue in a meet and confer and try to get agreement or file a motion? I, absolutely. I'll, I'll raise it in a, in a meet and confer. And, and only if I, if, if I get 
if I get in a pushback on that, if I put this order in front of them and I get pushback and they say, no, we can rely on something without going back to the court, then I'll call up the court and set up a call and, and get the same ruling from Judge Albright. Seems to be kind of a waste of time, but until the, uh, the practicing bar gets familiar with the court's preference on this, we may have to go back and get other orders. But again, Judge Albright has an advisory committee on his patent procedures. We're meeting later this month, and it may be that he tells us, I'm going to go ahead and stick this in the FAQs so that you know how I expect this to be handled. Well, wonderful. Michael, thank you for your time this week. Um, obviously a big week, and we'll see what next week does for us. We certainly will. I appreciate you having me, and uh, have a good week.